0: Some of you might remember a few weeks ago I put out a call that I had a cat living on my back porch that we'd been taking care of for quite a while, and I was trying to find a home for him. I'm happy to report he's living in Marion, Kentucky with the Hodge family. Saw some pictures, he's laying around on the bed, and he looks like he's really happy. Looks like he's a lot happier than he was on my back porch. So through uh, social media and this platform right here, I feel like we've accomplished something. It might be the biggest accomplishment I've made so far this year. Maybe next week I'll try to sort out some of those Middle Eastern problems. (laughs) ¶¶ Hey friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks For Giving A Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, and I have a dog and a cat sitting right next to me. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Wayne Kramer. Wayne is a guitarist, singer, songwriter, producer, and film and television composer. You might know him from his band, the MC5. You can find out everything you need to know about Wayne at WayneKramer.com. I first met Wayne a few years ago when I was in London, and Billy Bragg invited me to a party it was a Jail Guitar Doors event, and uh, that night I got to meet Wayne and I met Mick Jones and Chris Shiflet, and as you can imagine, it was a pretty great night for me. It was a little bit out of my reality. And since then, I've been able to help out on a few Jail Guitar door events in the U.S. for Wayne and, uh, and his wife, Margaret, and they've been really nice to me. They've been really good to me. We even got to go into a prison in Austin a couple years ago and deliver some guitars and speak to inmates about rehabilitation. But I met up with Wayne when he was in Austin a couple weeks ago, and uh, we were doing a jail guitar door event there at Lucy's. But uh, we got together beforehand and had this conversation. Wayne shared so many great stories that I went ahead and separated this into two parts. So here's part one of my conversation with Wayne Kramer. In the
1: Formative periods of the MC5. I, I spent a lot of time plotting and scheming. How do I do this? You know, how do I make a, a band that is going to be different than all other bands and, and make people pay attention to me and and you know want to come and you know pay their hard-earned money to come and see me play. And I I started to develop some ideas um, about um, how we would look. You know and how how we would act on stage, what the performance would be. you know, I was exposed to James Brown and the Motown artists. And later with the first wave of the British invasion, you know, the idea of putting on a performance uh, really became primary. you know, like how do you put on a show? And costumes, you know, what you dressed, how you dressed, what you wore, what colors they were! What materials started to to be important. I remember taking some acid, and and uh, and it just hitting me that you know, yeah, I, I want to have spangly, bright colors, you know, lames and sequins and stuff that would the lights, the stage lights would bounce off on, so you'd look at it just be radiant. Yeah, there was no shortage of grandiosity in the young Wayne Kramer. <laughs> Probably no shortage of it today. And uh, (laughs) so the guitar, I am a big fan of Pete Townsend. I always have been. I just really admire the guy. And I noticed that he had a sport coat that he made out of the the British Union Jack flag design. And I thought that was very clever. I I really like that. I'd like to do that, but I'm not British. I'm I'm an American. But we have a flag, too, and, you know, it's a pretty interesting color scheme, and uh, so maybe I could do something. The more I thought about I think probably smoked a lot of reefer, and let's paint the guitar like the flag. It'll be my thing. And it seemed to tie in to me, to my political um, voice, because... You know, I, I was cr- highly critical of much that the government did. And it was my understanding then, and it's my understanding today, that in a democracy, if you don't like the way things are, you're required to say something about it. Okay. Democracy is participatory. It's not a static thing. It's a living thing. It's something you do. And uh, so as a, as an American, in the in the truest sense of patriotism. I painted the guitar in the American flag to protest what I thought were, you know, immoral uh, policies of the government. Um, You know, some people think that I was in those days, you know, people would want to beat you up for wearing a flag shirt. I mean, it was actually against the law and you could be arrested.
0: You're desecrating the flag,
1: desecrating the flag. Yes and my uh, my position was that i'm honoring the flag i'm saying let's live up to these ideals you know these aspirational principles of uh, of justice and and you know egalitarian um philosophical uh, approach um so so and then the, the technical side of the guitar is that i had the Humbucker pickup put in the middle, um, so that when I played a solo, I could be just a little bit louder than Fred Smith. Because we both played ungodly loud. We we by that time we had these hundred watt marshall amplifiers, they're unbelievably loud. And he would play as his, his as loud as he could, and I played mine as loud as, as I could. And so i you know, when I took a solo, I needed just a little more power. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh
0: well, what year was that strat?
1: Oh, I probably bought those, built those in uh, 68, 67, 68. Me and... Uh,
0: Who did the paint job?
1: Robin Summers did the paint job. Great Detroit artist. One of our White Panther, crack White Panther art squad. Him and I stayed up all night one night painting the guitar and smoking reefer and and solving all the world's problems. <laughs> and, you know, I've I've been... Honored to have uh, the Fender Corporation um, build a Wayne Kramer Stars and Stripes Stratocaster model guitar that's available now. It's a Wayne Kramer signature model. Um, it's a great honor for a guitarist, you know, to have a signature guitar. There is no higher honor as far as I'm concerned. I've, I've, I've been to the mountaintop now. <laughs> Actually, I've been to the mountaintop twice because the Stratocaster sold so well, they asked me to um, design an acoustic guitar, which just came out in January. It's uh, the uh, Wayne Kramer um, Royal Tone acoustic model. We, we had another drummer early on in the band, in the first version of the MC5, a man named Bob Gasper, who's a terrific pocket-driven drummer, really dead in there played with a lot of drive but he quit the band because he didn't like the uh the uh the, the the experimenting that we were doing with free music he was he he wanted that beat and we wanted to play outside the beat we wanted to go beyond the beat and he hated it and um I think he also didn't like, uh, you know, kind of the lifestyle choices that we were making. He was kind of a conservative guy and he, you know, wanted to have a nice car and a girlfriend and money in the bank. And none of those things appealed to me at the time, you know. (laughs) So um, he left the band and we were looking for a new drummer. And there was a band up in Ann Arbor called the Prime Movers Blues Band. And everybody talked about this drummer that they had in the band. His name was Jim Osterberg. Man, if you guys need a drummer, man, this guy is something else. So Fred and I went up to, to see them and hear this drummer, and we were blown away. He was a great drummer. In fact, we saw them in a club. You know, this was in the era where long hair was still weird. And uh, we were hanging out with these, these other guys that we met up there, these musicians. They were called the Ashton Brothers, and they had long hair too. And uh, Fred had long hair. I was still combing my hair back. I still had the pompadour. I was still, (laughs) had my 50s thing on. And uh, these these, uh, fraternity boys started to harass us. And I thought, okay, you know, I mean, I'm from Lincoln Park. Okay, we're gonna fight now. And Scott Ashton, who later became known as Rock Action, the drummer in the Stooges, you know, he's a big guy and he knows how to fight. I mean, he's a tough guy. And as this guy was messing with Fred about his hair, Scott came up behind the guy, grabbed him by his lapels, and kicked him in his ass across the dance floor. Leave this guy alone. He's my friend. <laughs> kicked him in his ass. I was like, I was impressed. You know, God damn, you go, bro. And so we became friends with the Ashton brothers. And they knew Jim Osterberg, this drummer. Ultimately, Jim Osterberg wasn't interested in joining our band. Um, and uh, and then we heard that he left town. He went to Chicago, and he was playing with some blues bands. He was really into the blues. And he went to to the source. He went to the well, and he played with I don't know if he played with the Junior Wells or Holland Wolf or I mean he he went and played with some of those guys. And then we heard that he had this um, kind of a psychedelic breakthrough where he came back and he had a whole new concept of what he wanted to do. And he wasn't going to be a drummer anymore. And he had this new idea about how to, to have his own blues, his own music. And he reinvented himself, and his new name was Iggy Pop. And he hired the Ashton brothers. They all formed this group, and they called it the Psychedelic Stooges. And and at around this time, the MC5 had moved up to Ann Arbor, where they lived, and we became like a brother bands. You know, we all hung out together. We'd eat together. We'd all get high together. I mean, we were all in the same thing. But they were doing their thing, and we were doing our thing. The MC5 didn't have a lot of experience in the recording studio before our first album. We had recorded a series of singles. Maybe I think we had three recording sessions. And in those days, you'd go in, you'd have three hours to record two sides, do your overdubs, put the vocals on, mix them and get out. Because Edwin Starr is waiting in the lobby to bring his band in to cut some tracks, you know. Uh, it was a real Detroit assembly line, and in those days, I used to on those early sessions. I would use a uh, we didn't have we didn't have the um, Marshalls yet. I would uh, we had we had some Vox amps. Uh, they were hundred watt super Beetles, and there was a, a, a voltage control on them for Europe, yeah. and you could change the voltage depending on the country you're in. We found that if you put it on 220, you could get great distortion <laughs> at at a <coughs> at a reasonable volume. Um, I I used a, on one of those sessions. I remember because I had the band gear at my house, and I'd go down and experiment with it. And we had a little 30 watt PA amp, and I plugged the guitar into the PA amp, and I could crank it up all the way and it had great distortion. So I'd use that. I use that on that one session uh, where the original Looking at You was really kind of extreme guitar tone. But, you know, so the first MC5 album was recorded live, and those were 100-watt marshals there. Later, when we got to uh, our second album back in the USA, we used mostly Fender amps in the studio. And I don't think we used any... um, uh, The the Stompbox thing... Existed, but it wasn't really uh, dominant yet. Uh, I don't think I used any um, uh, overdrive um, equipment on that one. And then I don't think we did on um, the th- third MC5 album, High Time, either. I think those were all just, we just would crank the amp till we got a little crunch out of it. And-
0: were those Fender amps uh, twins or showmans? or I used a um,
1: concert four ten concert for recording. I like the tone of that. I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think Fred used a twin,
0: the Silverface. Yeah,
1: they were Silverface. I had a good one. We, we bought the Fender gear to use to rehearse with, because the Marshalls were just like <sighs> <laughs> they're so loud, you know. Like, <laughs> and we would rehearse a lot. I mean, we'd spend all day, you know. sometime for one period, we'd spend all day every day in the rehearsal room, you know, just figuring out how to do what we wanted to do and try to write songs. And it got to be too much. They were too loud. So we said, let's get some smaller amps just for rehearsing. (laughs) When we finally graduated to having a a van, um, our first one, we had a Chevy, a blue Chevy van that Gary Grimshaw painted our logo on, MC5, and Sinclair hooked up with a very early version of um, uh, like, it was like an eight track, but they were much bigger. They were like 10 inches by 10 inches. There was like a tape cartridge and he would record, you know, Coltrane and Albert Eiler and, and Sun Ra. And then he had a system in the van and then we had a mattress on the floor. So we'd all lay on the mattress in the back and we'd crank Albert Eiler and, and ride to our gigs and and of course Michigan winters are brutal so in the wintertime we'd, we'd have blankets and we'd be laying all laying on the mattress all huddled up together you know <laughs> cuddling up we we all cuddled up and smoked weed and uh, and then uh that that uh, van was firebombed um, we had some enemies on the right who were uh as militant as we were and they firebombed our and there was a group called the they were called Breakthrough or the John Birch Society. They were just right-wing zealots, you know, and and since we represented everything that they were afraid of and and despised, <laughs> they uh they firebombed our they firebombed our house too. They 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 firebombed our studio. Um then we we got uh finally got a big a new dot we leased a Dodge van big Dodge van. That was great. And then we'd leased another one. So we had one for the gear, we had the equipment van and we had the band people van. And that held us for a couple of years. We were, we were pretty proud of that. You know, like we had our, like a rig, you know, (laughs) we cruise in and the the five would pull up and there'd be their two vans. And we were, I was proud of those.
0: Did you have the logo on the side of the Dodge van? Yeah, we put
1: the logo on there and yeah, (laughs) we were, we were, but then, you know, it would also cause us trouble because the police would always know it was us and then they'd pull us over. And, you know, we were, we were constantly harassed by the Detroit Police Department. Um, we found out later uh, orders from the White House had come down in the Justice Department to, to harass, uh, you know, domestic uh, protest anyone that was standing in the way or didn't like what the government was doing were the object of, uh, of harassment from J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. Uh, we know now through Freedom of Information requests that there was a program called COINTELPRO that targeted the MC5, the White Panther Party, SDS, the Black Panther Party, um, the Yippies, Uh, any group that, that, uh, that opposed the government were subject to this, um, telephones being tapped illegally. So, you know, we, the logos were a a mixed blessing, putting the logo on the van. And then as time went on, um, we, we had a, um, we met a roadie who owned a big truck, a big box truck. So the gear would go in there. And then we would just rent a station wagon and we would just drive to Miami or something and play three or four shows and the gear would go overland. Then we started flying to, uh, the gear would go over land and we'd fly to the gigs. But then we realized we'd go out and play three or four gigs and come home with no money because we flew. <laughs> <laughs> so then we went, by then we were like driving our own cars to Salt Lake City, you know, to play a gig and drive home. And and then you know by then the, the band was kind of like uh, it was all kind of running out of steam at that point and it was just like hang on hang on hang on.
0: In those earlier days with the vans, were you staying in hotels? Were you crashing on people's couches? Or
1: well, in the early days we'd crash, you know, because Sinclair would have his hippie colleagues in different because we just no money. We didn't have any money to you know everything we did was seat of the pants, you know. DyI, you know, artists for survival basis. (laughs) Uh, So we would stay with people, and then later on, you know, when we were earning a a bit of a wage, we would would get. Well, it, it, you know, they were all different in their own way. We played a number of riots. (laughs) (laughs) What we, what my experience was is that everything was kind of cool while the band was playing. It was when the band stopped playing and the crowd didn't have anything to focus on anymore that they focused on the police or the police focused on them and the mayhem was started. I mean, that was the case at the the Belle Isle Love-In Riot where in Detroit there was a great outdoor park in the middle of the Detroit River called Belle Isle and uh we were going to have a love in and uh the detroit police just went on a rampage after it was over and uh, it it was it was really a uh, a radicalizing experience for me to see policemen beating kids you know i kind of grew up uh, with this idea that you know you're i mean i'm white I, you know uh, detroit was a flourishing city i i was never on the receiving end of uh of uh of detroit police brutality i mean i think it existed i mean i know it existed in the black community and hispanic community and i suppose in in the poor communities the detroit police you know traditionally police in america have been the biggest gang in town so I I always thought, you know, well, the policeman was somebody that, you know, like you went to if you were lost, you know, as a little boy. I th- my mother dated policemen. I, I said, oh yeah, it's impressive. And here were these policemen beating on my friends, you know, like on from horseback with a with a baton as if they were playing polo. That radicalized me, that polarized me, and then uh, we we played a couple other events that turned ugly with the same kind of police overreaction to, you know, hippies <laughs> smoking pot and dancing to music. And uh, when we finally we performed at the Democratic Convention in Chicago uh, in 1968, uh, it, out, outdoors in the park, and we knew that the Chicago police were going to go off. You know, everybody knew that this was going to turn into a rampage. It was a bizarre experience because festivals, outdoor rock gigs, are usually fun. They're usually like a nice vibe, you know, and girls are running around in halter tops and people are smoking weed and the bands are grooving and it's, ah, this is great, I love you too, brother. And boy, this one was nothing like that. You know, people were paranoid. There was, the fear was palpable in, in the air. And uh, as, as, uh, as expected, the minute we finished our set, the Chicago police started the first wave of charges through the crowd, just wailing on people. And, of course, you know, the, uh, the, the militants in the crowd were ready for them, and they fought back and, uh, you know, just turned into a gigantic rampage. Uh, across the streets of Chicago. I mean, it was it was kind of, you know, they were very polarized days. I think it's hard for people to get a grip on it today. But all young people were in a general agreement that our parents' generation was fucking everything up and we had to do something about it. <laughs> we had we had that certainty of youth, you know, that we knew a better way, and, uh, and I think, to a great extent, we did. Certainly, we made some terrible mistakes along the way. But, um, yeah, playing, playing, playing at the riot, yes. Uh, we, we something we specialized in. <laughs> Having a riot? called the mc <laughs> <laughs> 5 Hejmu Heshmu5-8000. when i first started playing in bands nobody had even heard of a thing called a monitor they just didn't exist like the club would have the pa system or bands would have their own the better bands started building their own pa systems because what was in clubs was inadequate but you know bands played at a different dynamic level the the volume of of a of a band on stage was different than it is today. You would work with the sound that you had of the acoustic instrument. You know, amplifiers were 15 watts, you know. A 30-watt amp was considered gigantic. Uh, So the drummer, you know, I mean, drums are meant to be played. That's why they're loud. You hit it and, you know, it, it cuts through. Saxophones cut through you know, the emergence of the electric guitar really was you know Charlie Christian, so that he could actually be a soloist in the big band because guitarists were always relegated to being rhythm players, and all you'd hear is this kind of little <laughs> in the background <laughs> you know one chord to the you know four chords to the bar it was in the rhythm section, so the sound the sound was different um and and it was all about the vocals you know especially for the motown artists it's all about singing so the musicians have to you can't you can't play louder than the singers you know you have to work it starts with the singers and you work back of course all that changed with the coming of the mc5 you could hardly be a kid growing up in detroit in the late 50s and early 60s and and not be a fan of Big time wrestling—that's what we call it. Big time wrestling, because it was so local. And uh, I remember that the TV was black and white, and the sets and the events were so cheesy <laughs> <laughs> that it was it was almost laughable. And I was a kid, you know, I was whatever seven, eight, nine years old, and. But they were great character. Uh, I, I, the Detroit favorite, of course, was Dick the Bruiser, who who was in fact a big thug, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and let me see, there was the Chic, who uh, was rumored to be a, a dirty fighter. He, he would uh, take a garlic in his in his drawers. In his <laughs> trunks, and he would sneak the garlic out and rub it into his opponent's eyes. This was, <laughs> and then we had uh, Haystack Calhoun, who was this uh, three hundred and fifty pound, you know, morbidly obese man <laughs> in uh, in overalls and a beard, and he'd just come out and he'd, of course, roll over on his opponent and pin him, and yeah, it was all. Uh, Big-time wrestling was uh, it was very popular in, in Detroit, in, in my youth.
0: Dick the Bruiser was also, I grew up in Indianapolis, and Dick the Bruiser was our hero and champion also. Oh, excellent. And he would feud with the original Sheik, and I remember the Sheik would throw fire in, in a bruiser's face, and the whole crowd wanted to murder him at that point. Sure. Did you ever go to the matches?
1: I never went to a match. I've still never been to a professional match wrestling match but i but i get the um it's a it's a whole little opera <clears throat> you know there's a whole ritual to it and the good guy and the bad guy and you know the hitting with the folding chair and it, it's all part of it you know The kind of controlled anarchy of uh it's it's almost like edge prop you know performance
0: art I'd like to thank everybody for listening in and I'd like to thank Wayne for meeting up with me in Austin, Texas. You can find out everything you need to know about Wayne at waynecramer.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note if you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash just go to iTunes and leave us a 5 star review, leave a comment subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday but if you enjoy this show you enjoy my music you enjoy Amy's music please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word and if you'd like to send us a message we'd love to hear from you is send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.